0: From one islander to another, Isle of Wight Radio proudly presents John Hannam Meets. Well, in my 44 years as an interviewer, I've interviewed Cliff Richard, Hank Marvin, Jet Harris, Licorice Locking, Brian Bennett, Cliff Hall, and long, long last, wonderful Bruce Welch.
1: Good to see you. Hello there. Hiya, John. Now we owe this. How come it took so long? You've I don't know. You did everyone else except I me. I know. I have tried, but you'd better get me before
0: I pop off. Oh, there's a lot of life in you yet. You, you look terrific. No, you, do you. Thank you. Thank you. We met both watching one of our fifties idols, didn't Absolutely. we? Absolutely. So we were at the play do the other afternoon watching the sound check. My son and I. Mrs. Dwayne Eddy said, "Come and watch the sound check." Yeah. I said to my son, "God, is Bruce Welch over there?" And went and asked you for an interview, and that's why you're here. That's why I'm here. So it's absolutely brilliant to see you. Thank you very much. And as I said on that night, congratulations on the music you and the boys have played over the years, because it's been an inspiration to so many of us, really.
1: It's only 60 years, John. Only 60 years.
0: Good for a boy from Bognor, really. Yeah,
1: yeah, local, (laughs) local.
0: Yes, just along the south coast. Yeah, exactly. I know you sort of only lived in Bogner for a while, then went to Chester Street, didn't yes, you?
1: Yes, I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: That was a, a culture it, shock, or not really.
1: Well, it was the war, of course. I was born in uh, November '41, and uh, Mr. Hitler was just across the water, really, in those days. So um, I think I was about three, or maybe under, th- a bit less than three, when uh, we up went to Chesley Street, which is where I grew up. Actually, I went to school in Chesley Street from the age of five. To the age of eleven, so I was a Chesley Street boy for the, in the, when was that? The forties, of course. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Sadly, your mum died when you were quite young. I was five. You? Yeah. Gosh. Yeah.
1: She died of uh, TB, which Gee. now you can cure, but in those days you couldn't. Yeah.
0: How did you cope being so young? Really, how did you cope? I didn't
1: really know her, John, to be to be honest. I, I have no recollection of her at all. I've got a couple of photographs at home. Uh, me on her knee when I was about nine months old, and another one, I was probably about, I don't know, two, trying to walk around the garden, you know. Uh, and that's it. That's it. Gosh, well, she spent a couple of years in a in a sanitarium. Oh. So I don't have any uh, tangible memory of her at all, I'm afraid.
0: I know you had a few uncles, and one called Uncle Norman bought you a ukulele. Did not he? He did. Yeah. I don't
1: think he was a real. You know, everyone was uncle in those days. You exactly. know, exactly. Friends of the family were were uncle, and um, yeah, Uncle Norman, when I was eight, turned up with a uh, a ukulele. Now he could play it; I couldn't play it. And he, anyway, he left it. And that, you know, who knows? I mean, in your subconscious, just holding a little. Uh, I'm trying, yeah, eight, eight years old. Gosh. I certainly couldn't play it. I couldn't play one now. But who knows? I don't know whether that subconsciously thought, "Oh, this you know, feels all right at the age of eight. <laughs> I doubt it, but it, still. It got wet. It's a memory. Didn't it's, it get wet? It get and, wet and, and disintegrated. Oh. Yeah, as you do.
0: They tell me you were inspired when you saw a movie when there was a song called There's No Business Like Show Business. Is that a true story? It or? is a
1: true story. My auntie, uh, when we were living in Chesley Street, Aunt Sadie, who brought me up, who was my mum's sister, obviously, um, she was a market trader. So I think it was every Friday, happened to be the Chesley Street market. So she used to travel around Newcastle and South Shields and Stockton and all those places. So um, I think it was after school I went to see this movie because the, the movie house was hundred yards from the from the market. I used to go and see movies because it was like took you to a to spend time because I didn't want to stand on the market all day without Sadie. But saw uh, I'm trying to think of the name of the movie man. It was Ethel Merman though, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. And there's that song, and I must have been ten, maybe, probably about ten, because I moved to Newcastle when I was eleven. So. And there's that fantastic song with that fantastic lyric. There's no business like show business. You know, there's no business I know. Everything about it is appealing. All that stuff. And I thought, again, in your subconscious, you think, no, I couldn't have... It It just seemed appealing somehow.
0: When you were growing up, it was almost like every boy's dream. You lived over a fish and chip shop for a while, didn't you? Yeah, well,
1: we owned it. I say we, I didn't own it, but they owned it. And, of course, I used to have to do chores in the fish shop after, after school. So in those days, there was no automation. I used to, in the backyard of the fish shop, outdoors, I used to, we used to have a potato peeling machine, <laughs> cold water and potatoes. And I used to, you know, do that and then uh, literally press it down on the, the thing and it would turn into chips. Uh, and I used to gut the fish very exciting when you're a young boy you know let chop the heads off and take all the guts out and hand it over so that was my other career
0: when you and I were growing up the radio was the big thing of course wasn't it the oh, goon yeah. show educating yeah. Archie and all you were sort of like me I guess fascinated by those radio shows weren't you really well we all were I mean it was yeah. like
1: listening to you know the goons and uh, Charles Chilton's Riders of the Range, Mm. and Dick Barton. Uh, Dick Barton was unbelievable, you know, when you're a kid. It's your imagination with radio, Yeah, isn't it? Yeah. But growing up again, what was fantastic for me, and you're probably going to come on to it, was in Newcastle we had an empire. Most of the big cities, towns, had empires, which was variety. So I could go and see, and I did, because maybe that line about there's no business like show business, I could go and see uh, Slim Whitman, Billy Eckstein, Lonnie Donegan, The Platters, Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers. They all would come and do a week in variety. Somehow, I I don't know where the money came from, but somehow I would go and see these shows And when I was 14, 15, and I thought, you know, you think, oh, this this has got to be the life... This has to be the life. It looks so exciting. And, A, I love the music, you know, especially when the platters and people are that close. Gosh, Yeah. Yeah, fantastic.
0: I used to go to Portsmouth to the Theatre Royal there uh-huh. or the Empire there. Mm-hmm. And I saw Frankie Vaughan in his third week in the business. Uh-huh. And, um, nice man. Lovely man. Nice man, yeah. And uh, I saw lots and lots of people that later became stars. And I saw Michael Benteen and people like that. Yeah. So good to look back We worked the Palladium with him.
1: You did, My did book? you? yeah. We did uh, six months at the Palladium with Michael in 1960. You
0: liked Ray Ellington, didn't you?
1: Well, you, again, he was there. Yeah, you know, It was radio and uh, and what was the harmonica play? Max Geldray. Max Geldray, yeah. Max Geldray. There again, that's the radio. You, yeah. You were glued to radio, and especially the goons. Yes. If you were of a certain uh, nature, the goons were just... echos wasn't it? And all... Oh, all Eccles. Oh. <laughs> wow. Yeah, all oh, lovely Fantastic. stuff, it? yeah.
0: Then, of course, Donegan came along as well, which was quite important for lots of young guys, wasn't it, really?
1: Lonnie, well, Lonnie in the UK. Mm. I don't know if we're going to talk about it again, but, I mean, obviously rock and roll came from America, so first influences were from 1955, I guess. Bill Haley came with "Rock Around the Clock... I can remember going to the cinema in Newcastle where all the teddy boys were ripping up the seats, you know, because of that song, that music was just so, so exciting. And Elvis came, then Elvis came. So January 56, uh, on the BBC, I heard um, some guy saying, and now we have this... Very, very plummy. You know, the the old accent. Very very British. Oh, yes. Very very posh. They used to wear dress suits. Yeah, and the guy would say, and he said, uh, and now we have uh, a record from America, Elvis Presley. And it was Heartbreak Hotel. Wow. And we went, whoa, what is that? What is that? And exactly the same time in January 56, in the UK, we had Lonnie Donning and any skiffle groups. Skiffle group, I should say, Mm. doing Rock Island Line. Yeah. And all that stuff. And uh, Lonnie became the catalyst for so many of people like me and Hank and Brian May and, and Eric Clapton and Harrison. Lonnie used to say, anybody can do this sort of music. All you need is, a you know, two or three guitars and a washboard and a, a tea chest bass and things. And so, so many of us at school started a skiffle group. John and Paul... Started one in uh, Liverpool, you may have heard of them. <laughs> uh, Hank and I had one at school called The Railroaders. So we, at the age of 14, in 1956, we had The Railroaders at school. And, uh, but skiffle was a huge, huge thing. And Lonnie was obviously the king, he was the king. So everybody sang Lonnie Donegan songs, we all sang Elvis songs, we sang Bill Haley songs, Razzle Dazzle and all that stuff. See you later, Alligator, all that stuff. It was magic. I can't tell you. Well, you're old enough to remember. Mm. Almost. Not as old as me, but almost. I can't tell you the excitement that it was to, to young kids, because this was new music. This was not your parents' music. This was not, with all due respect, this was not the big band music with the, the big band singers. Dickie Valentine became a friend of mine, and he was huge. Wonderful as a, singer. As a crooner. Yeah, you know, um, Ronnie Hilton, uh, Ronnie yeah, Carroll, yeah. you know, all of those guys that we work with when we made it, you know, with, with, the uh, so rock and roll took over in a huge way from, from that era, if you like.
0: In a couple of weeks, uh, I'm interviewing someone I've interviewed several times, Charlie Gracie, yeah. who had a great influence. He was one of the early rock
1: and rollers. I saw him. 1957, you? Newcastle Empire. Wow. Yeah. John Hannam, he's on the air now. Hannam, Hannam, doesn't matter. He's a lovely boy.
0: You actually met this guy called Brian Rankin, didn't you, when you got your 11 plus?
1: When I was 11, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because well, you were... You I, were was, Bru- I was Bruce Cripps. Yes, you were. I yeah. was born Bruce Cripps. Yes, yeah. yeah. But my mother's name was Welsh. And I thought, first of all, I was going to be Buddy Cripps or, you know, Elvis Cripps. That didn't sound right. So I, I kept Bruce and took my uh, Welsh and yeah. Grace Welsh, yeah, yeah.
0: Because some so, call you Welsh and some call you Welch, don't they? Well, I've I, always
1: called you Welch. Yeah, Dwayne, my son, says yeah, Welch. Right. You, Good I enough s- for me then. I say Welsh, C H. I always say C H because most people write S H. But yes, I met this Brian Rankin when we were eleven. We both somehow we passed the eleven plus, and um, I left Chesley Street to move to Newcastle and went to Rutherford uh, School there. So that's where we met. In fact, we met on the very first day we arrived there, uh, obviously not knowing each other. And over the next sort of two or three years, you know, when skiffle came especially, we were always interested in music, but when skiffle came, Hank had a skiffle group. He was a very traditionalist. He wore the the uh, blue duffel coat, the college scarf, and he played the banjo. Did he? He played banjo first. And... Um, but then i got him to join the railroaders skiffle group which was our skiffle group at school and his father bless him bought hank a guitar for his 16th birthday and he bought him a little hofner congress which was 16 guineas and he played that he switched from banjo to guitar and he was already quite brilliant as a musician he was just mm. so inventive at 16 you know 16 years old and i was i was just Three chords in any, almost in any key. I didn't know any keys then.
0: <laughs> you went off to London to go yeah. into a big contest, didn't you, with the railroad?
1: Yeah, we did, yeah, yeah, yeah. We came, do you want me to ramble on about yeah, it? I, I yeah, yeah, I came. Yeah, we came down. I don't know how we found out about it. Anyway, there was some competition in uh, the Granada Edmonton on a Sunday night. This was April of 1958. So the band came down, we all came down. Hank's dad worked on British Rail, so he managed to get us a cheap fares down to London into king's cross anyway went to did the show and didn't win we came third i think so it's a sunday night and uh the manager of the place was a huge scots guy lovely guy and he said oh where are you going lads what's so what are you doing now this is after the show was over said, and we said well don't know really he said what do you mean you, you, we don't know i said "He said where are you staying tonight you know obviously from newcastle I said, well, we don't know. We don't know yet. It's you know, We don't know anybody. <laughs> he said, really? I said, yeah, we don't know. Anybody. So he said, hang on a minute. And he went and rang someone, which turned out to be a landlady, in Finsbury Park. And he, he told us when he came back, he said, I rang, the, rang this lady I know. She's a Geordie. And she, she let us uh, sleep in her attic. I suppose officially for maybe a couple of nights. Um, but Hank and I stayed there for six months. But then on the Monday, the next day, the two other the guys said, we're going to go home. In abroad, Georgia, we're going, here. you know, we're going. <laughs> so and Hank and I said, we think we'll stay. We were in London, you know, we were there, it was just, and that was the biggest uh, decision I think we ever made right, right, the, then to the, stay. Yeah, the two eyes,
0: obviously. Yeah. yeah, then we
1: went on to the two eyes. Because um, you worked there as well, didn't you? Oh yeah, yeah. If we why I? <laughs> <laughs> why I, yeah. You're going to have to stop me, John, if you want me to stop talking, because I'll ramble on four or five hours. I
0: don't mind at all. No, no. So,
1: <laughs> the next day, we had heard about this famous coffee bar called the Two Eyes Coffee Bar in Soho, and it was famous because Tommy Steele had been discovered there. So I think between late '56 and certainly when we got there in April '58. There were so many wannabes, all the wannabe, you know, wannabe discovered mm. wannabe stars, and all the everybody went there, you know. And Hank and I turned up. We were the Geordie Boys, you know. We, we thought we were Don and Phil Everly at the time. We were a cross between Don and Phil Everly, Elvis and Buddy Holly, and everybody else. Yes, you know, as you do, as you do. And um, we managed to uh, uh, be sort of hired, not not technically, but. They let us play maybe four nights a week, play and sing. Not just us, because it was one of those places where people would say, can I get up and jam? Can I do a couple of numbers with you? Can I play drums? Can I do the?" Uh, and they did. And uh, so Hank and I managed to work there maybe three or four nights a week. And we got the equivalent of uh, what is now 80p a night. Shh. So it was, uh, yeah, well, <laughs> not a lot. 18 shillings in those days. And on the nights that uh, we weren't playing, I used to sell orange juice downstairs on an orange juice machine. Obviously an orange juice machine. Yeah. But they were those sort of, they weren't plastic in those They were almost like cardboard cups. And I used to fiddle I remember, them. I used yeah. to fiddle the so they would get soggier and soggier using the same cup. <laughs> you know, so I did that. And uh, one night in, uh, must have been April, late April. Hank wasn't there that particular night. And Cliff and the Drifters came down. So I'm f- selling orange juice at the machine at the back. It sounds like a massive place, John. The two eyes was probably twelve feet wide and twenty feet, twenty-five feet long. That was it, but it was crammed. There was a little stage at one end. Anyway, I, all I remember is Cliff came down, didn't meet him, didn't say hello. He looked like Elvis. He had the he had the burns. He was swarthy, you know. He was born in India, so he had the great hair. And uh, I went home to hang, and I said, there was a guy tonight, he was great, you know. And never thought anything of it. Just another guy who sang like Elvis and was really good. Forgot about it. During that, from April till September, late September of 1958, we lived in the Two Eyes. We met people in the Two Eyes, we would be playing, and, and like I said, people would want to get up and sing with you or play with you, kind of. And one night, a guy called Jet Harris... Got up. He was he was a star already. Down the two eyes, he looked fantastic. Looked mm. like James Dean. Yes, blonde hair. Was a great bass player. He sat in, as we call it. He would sit in and just play a couple of numbers, and then met Brian Bennett down there. Fantastic drummer. And then one night, um, there's a little kid. I mean, when I say kid. Hank and I were sixteen. So there was a a kid younger than we were standing in front of us, watching, and a little cap on. He said. Can I get up and play said, I play drums? I said, yeah, yeah. And it was Tony Meehan. So without knowing, over that period of five months or whatever it was, we meant uh, Licorice Locking was down there. Brian Bennett, Jet Harris, Tony Meehan, Hank and myself, which all later became uh, incarnations of... The shadows. Amazing, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, and without realizing, without knowing. So it was a fantastic breeding ground, I guess, for for meeting people, for playing with other people. Because
0: you backed Tony Sheridan, Vince Eager, didn't you, for a
1: while? Yeah. Well, everybody yeah. backed everybody else, yeah. John. It was one of those. We didn't have sort of. We weren't hired to back certain people. People just used to almost like a jazz uh, mm-hmm. club. Yeah, we get up. Can we play? Just to. Have a little play. You were in the Five Chestnuts Nuts for a while. Yeah, now, yeah. I'm going to whiz through that very quickly. What I'm trying to get at here is we came on April the 6th of... I'm very good at dates, by the way. I can't remember what I had yesterday for lunch. <laughs> but if you ask me about the 50s... <laughs> yeah. April the 6th, we came down, and uh, by not knowing anyone in London, so we're staying in Mrs. Bowman's house in the attic in Finsey Park, We somehow met, he must have come to the two eyes. Charlie Chester's son was a guy called Mm. Peter Chester. He was a drummer and a little would-be songwriter. And Hank and I didn't have any money, and uh, we didn't know who he was really at the time. He said, would you like to come back to my place and we can play there and jam there. And he said, my mum can make you something to eat. And it was only when we got back to uh, Hampstead Garden suburb, very posh, we realised it was Charlie Chester's house. You know, who was a... Huge. He was. He was a huge star. Lovely guy. Lovely guy. And his mum was lovely. And we used to play in his attic. Now, I'm talking about between April the 6th, by July, we had made a record and we were on... um, Six Five Special? Six Five Special. We were on television, having made a record, didn't know anybody, within, what, two months, three months of, of hitting London with not knowing anything. I mean, incredible. But that was just for one record. The record didn't yeah. happen, and then within a couple of months after that, uh, I think it was in the September, we were back in the Two Eyes in the afternoon, jamming, playing, talking with all our mates and stuff. Really, he didn't have anywhere else to go. No. you know, it was like it was like a, the place. And a, a guy came down, and he. To be fair, he'd heard about a, a great guitarist in the Two Eyes. Now there were two great guitarists in the Two Eyes. One was. Tony Sheridan, you've mentioned mm. Tony Sheridan. Tony was a great player and a great and a great performer and a great. He wasn't there that day. Hank was there, and Hank was the other great player. Hank could play the introduction of "That'll Be the Day" and all the Buddy Holly stuff and all that stuff. And if you could do that, then you were like a great player, you know. Anyone. Anyway, he was really good. And uh, John Foster came down. I'm Cliff Richard's manager. And who's Cliff Richard, you know? And um, Hank played him a few things. He said, great. So I'm looking for a lead guitarist. I've got a tour booked starting the 5th of October, 1958. And I'd love you to do it, Hank. And then Hank said, well, I'll do it if my mate can come. So he said, well, would you like to come around and we'll meet Cliff? So he took us out of the two eyes. We went a couple of streets away to Dean Street, up a flight of stairs to a tailor's shop. And there was Cliff having his uh, pink jacket fitted. So we sort of looked at him. He looked at us. You know, we were all pimples and greased back hair. You know, we were both sixteen. He was seventeen. He said, "Would you come back to my place and like an audition, I guess?" He hadn't yeah. he hadn't heard Hank play. So Hank and I got on the the green line bus outside Portland Place, the BBC, went to a place called Chesant in Hertfordshire. Mm. We'd never been. That was exciting. Outside okay. of London, <laughs> Chesent, didn't I? And we went to Cliff's council house. He lived there with his mum, dad, and three sisters. And Hank and I took our guitars, obviously. Uh, no amps or anything, just, you know. We went in and practiced in the front room. Really, it was an audition, I suppose, but we didn't think of it like that. And we just played and we went, oh, yeah, great. And then, we well, let's do uh, Ricky Nelson's so-and-so. Let's do Elvis's so-and-so. What about Buddy Holly's this, that, and the other? What about the Everly Brothers' this, and the other? And, and Hank played it all. We played it and Cliff said, yeah, great. He said, it's a three-week tour. I'd love you to do it. And that three weeks turn it to 60 years
0: put that light out
1: i'm trying to relax and listen to john Hanum. obviously move it
0: is one of the greatest british rock and roll records of all time uh, i know you weren't on the original record but you must have played it thousands of times really.
1: thousands of times yeah trying to get that bottom e in tune is <laughs> quite quite a feat it was written by ian samuel who was one of the original drifters that came down the two eyes that i saw you know in april of 58 written on the bus going home from the bbc to cheshunt same journey he wrote it on the bus uh, and it is in uh, my opinion uh, the best it, it it it's the best rock and roll record it's true to itself the lyric is true to itself the original is one verse repeated, which I'm digressing now. It's the same story, but Everly Brothers' Walk Right Back was written uh, by a guy called Sonny Curtis. Mm. Played it to the Everlys, and he said, I've just got this one verse, and the Everlys couldn't wait. They loved the song so much. They recorded it. They sing the same verse twice. Move, it's the same. But just a great record. The fantastic guitar, it was Ernie Shear, who's a Mm. session man. Well, very well-experienced, great guitar player. And it's just one of those fluke records, John. The sound on his guitar, the lead guitar, and it's Ian Samuel on the bottom. Going, you know. It's just magic. But the lyric in that first verse just says it, you know. It just really says it.
0: I can remember being in a record shop on the Isle of Wight, OK, in the old days when you Did had they have record booze? shops on the Isle yes, of Wight? Yes,
1: yes. Oh, goodness me, I must come there. Only
0: just. <laughs> and um, we were in the shop and this guy asked if they could put on Move It by Cliff Richard and of course then you could hear what was playing in the booth and everybody sort of what
1: on earth is this uh, a, yeah it's, it's just a it's a classic record it's a classic sound and when you're recording you know one day you could you could record it and it it wouldn't be right same arrangement same you think you're playing the same thing think you're playing the same sound but that is just one of those great great recordings <laughs>
0: He became such a mega star, didn't he? Fantastic. The biggest thing we had, really, in Britain, wasn't he? Cliff. Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, by far. By far. Yeah, yeah. Anybody was, who's had 130 hits, can't be wrong.
0: It's interesting, because I've only interviewed him once, and he was such a nice guy. And he, when I interviewed him, he'd had 100 and something hits. Yeah. And one or two from that era, who I won't mention, who had one and a half hits or something, they are always arrogant and big-headed, but... He's, he's always been good.
1: Always, Yeah, he's lovely.
0: I think we'd both like to say how thrilled and satisfied and grateful we are that he's come through unscarred, really, hasn't he? All that he? stuff.
1: Well, I don't know about unscarred, John, but it'll take a while. But he is on the mend. He is on the mend. I saw him uh, for his birthday at the Albert Hall. Uh, as you know, he's a much older man than me. He's 78, much older than me. Yes. And um, he, he was looking better. He... He, I'm sure he feels better, but that was four years of hell, mm. which is tragic for him because he was the biggest, biggest star by far. Anyone had tried to pin anything on, you know. As you well know, the saddest thing about all of it is we'll never know who accused him, mm. which uh, can't be right. Anyway, he's on the mend. Good.
0: And of course, all the big shows, hit number one hit records, Palladium yeah. Seasons. And yeah. uh, it was amazing for you guys who, uh, well, yeah. almost by accident joined his backing group, didn't you? Almost. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely.
1: Although, you know, again, Hank was a great, great player. Mm. I mean, he still is. But he to be that great so young was quite unique, you know, quite unique. And as I say, there were two great players in the two eyes, Tony Sheridan who did okay because he had a backing band in Germany called The Beatles. Yes. So, you know, he did all right.
0: (laughs) I love it when you can't stop a guest talking. So this has been part one of the Bruce Welch story, or Bruce Welsh, if you prefer. Listen out soon for part two. You've been listening to John Hannam Eats, courtesy of Isle of Wight Radio. Don't forget to look at my website, johnhannam.com for news of more interviews and how you might purchase my books. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye for now.
1: From one islander to another, Isle of Wight Radio proudly presents John Hannam Meets.
0: Welcome to part two of the Bruce Wurch story, and a singer-songwriter called Jerry Lauden is the subject of our first conversation in part two. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to John Hannam Moots. Meeting Jerry Lauden on a tour, what well, changed your life Fort again?
1: Yes, yes, it's not bad for a lad from Newcastle. Very good, very impressed.
0: Because, I don't care, wherever you are, when you hear Apache, people of a certain age, you, you, oh, it's fantastic, you know. Mm. And uh, I know there was another record by Mr. Whedon, but when yours came on the scene, it mm. just... Well,
1: I can tell you the story very Go quickly. On, yeah. We were on tour, Cliff and the Shades were on tour in April of uh, 1960. And one of the support acts was a guy called Jerry Lorden who was a singer-songwriter.
0: I've got his albums. I love Yeah, he's had a couple of
1: small hits, I'll Stay Single yeah. and who, oh, who Could Be Bluer. That's it, I love that He one. was in the top ten with Who Could Be Bluer. Yeah. So he was a singer-songwriter. We always to travel together on a coach in those days. Everybody was on a coach. Guitars and everything. And um, Norrie Paramore was our producer and uh, it was the way it was then you, you released a record every three months. And... Uh, we had had the shadows. I'm talking about now. Mm. We'd had three. Well, we had uh, feeling fine, vocal, jet black, instrumental, and Saturday dance, which got to number thirty. So we anyway, th- not hits. And we we're all talking, and, and I said we were talking to Jerry. And I said, oh, we need a, we need a new single, you know, soon, like July-ish. We need a single, and he said, he said, can I play you a tune? I've I've got a tune I've, I've written, you know. So we all said, yeah. yeah, yeah. So he went to the back of the bus. And he brought out a big ukulele. Uh, he used to write and play on a ukulele, but a big one. And um, he played the rhythm and he just went down, 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 <laughs> down, down, down. And Hang and I went, oh, yeah, what a, oh, we'd like that. we Would like to like, like play that to Nori, you know? Because Nori Poromo was obviously the boss. Anyway. Mm. So we went to Nori and so said, we've got this uh, great tune we've heard, Nori. And he said, well, I've, I've chosen you, your next uh, A-side because he was the producer. Mm, so he mm. told us what to do. Not, mm. And he said, but you could, uh, he said, your next A-side is going to be Quartermaster Stores, the old army yeah. song. You know, da-da-da, 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 da-da, da da-da. And so he said, but you can do Apache as the B-side, the other side. So we recorded the two tracks in June of 1960. And uh, Apache, then, was a brand new sound, Hang mm. with the, the, the Stratocaster, but the echo box, the sound of the echo box, uh, the vox amp, I was on acoustic, big acoustic guitar, and uh, we just knew, we liked both the records, but we said to Norrie, Apache's better than Quartermaster Stores. He said, no, no, he said, I, you know, I really like Quartermaster Stores. And we said, oh, please, Norrie, just, it's just different. It's so different. And he said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll take it home to my daughters and play it to them and see what they think. And he took it home and they chose Apache. And they had done it once before. A young guy called Cliff Richard, when he made Move It, Move It was going to be the B-side. Norrie took it home to his daughters and the daughters chose Move It. Wow. So... Thank you, Norrie's Daughters. So Apache came out, was number one, as you probably know, for six weeks. Sold, yeah. sold a million records. We were 18. So that's how we met Jerry Lorden, to get back to Jerry, bless him. But he didn't tell us that Bert Whedon had recorded it. He never mentioned Bert Whedon until I think we were number one. And he said, uh, Bert Whedon did record this yes. before. And we said, oh, really? So let's have a listen. And it was very... Uh, yeah. Yeah, the drum bump bump, bump you know the, to be fair you know we, when we were arranging it because the shadows would arrange between us yeah, yeah. how we were going to play it and we all that intro you know Hank wrote now down down down, 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 down down down, the introduction and that's the that's the real thing oh, that yeah. grabs you yeah the, the intro and the outro you go yeah. wow just very evocative so we were lucky we were and uh Suddenly, we we were away. We weren't just Cliff's backing band.
0: There were two sort of top acts. We had classmates. two
1: top acts, if you like. Yeah. Two top, uh, you know, we could top the bill yeah. as the shadows. Cliff could certainly top the bill with or without us, you know, with orchestras or anything. So we had this enormous, from, from sort of July 1960, you had two massive acts who, who chose to work together because we were mates, we were friends. So the shadows would maybe close the first half of a concert to start with. You know, we'd do maybe twenty minutes doing shadows instrumentals, and then a little interval, and then we'd come back on and back cliff for half an hour or thirty-five minutes, whatever it was. So it was a magic formula that we could use all the way through the sixties. You know,
0: contiki foot tapper dance on wonderful land patch. You all number one
1: records. All number ones, yeah, yeah. But we all we all worked together. But we did get that opportunity to work as the shadows. This is in uh, this is an incredible story. June nineteen sixty, when we just made Apache, to December nineteen sixty six months, we were having a season at the Palladium. There was Joan Regan,
0: oh I Edmund, love Joan,
1: Edmund Hockridge, yes, David Kossoff, and people like that. So we had a slot. You know, the the producers of the show. You know, you'd have t- fifteen minutes. You had twenty minutes. Twelve minutes, whatever it was. So Cliff and the Cliff and the Shadows had like a fifteen-minute spot, right? So there were Cliff songs, you know, Living Doll and all the mm. all that stuff, all, all the massive hits, Move It, and we had the number one single in the country. And the producers of the show wouldn't let us play it. No, we couldn't play it for six months at the Palladium. We had the number one record, sold a million records, and they wouldn't let us add another three minutes, you think of it now it's ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous so a friend of our agent said I'd like to promote the Shadows concerts by themselves, not with Cliff, we were at the Palladium from you know Monday till yeah. Saturday every Sunday we would go and top the bill as the Shads, somewhere Leicester, and, you know, Newcastle, Bristol and of course it was always full, you know it was packed, so we, that's what I mean we, had, we suddenly had these two top of the bill acts, Cliff was delighted he was thrilled that his group, you know, his mm, band mm. were massive. You know, we became massive. Cliff was massive anyway, he was the biggest biggest thing since sliced bread, you know, at the time.
0: It was amazing when you look back then, wasn't it? It was it a was, it was it was fantastic
1: time, yeah. You see, early
0: on you said Lonnie Donegan influence with this giffle. Yes. The Shadows also sort of inspired generations of young guys because years ago, a lot of us young guys, we like the rock and rollers, but we all love the instrumentals, you know, Dwayne Eddy and and all these great... uh, um, So you influenced, you four guys, particularly with the walk and everything, you influenced
1: generations, didn't you? We obviously became famous for the Red Stratocasters, or the Red Strat, the Pink Strat... Um, Buddy Holly was the first guy we ever saw with a Stratocaster. and We didn't know what it was. You couldn't go in a shop in England and buy one. You couldn't go down any of the famous streets, uh, you know, Tin Pan Alley, and buy a Stratocaster. So Cliff sent to California, to the Fender factory, and we got the brochure. A little brochure came, first of all, because Cliff wanted his guitar player, his lead guitarist, to have the best Equipment, you know, and sound like an American act, you know, sound like Ricky Nelson and, and all these people. And I remember it so clearly. This little brochure, you know, it was probably about six inches by four inches, and we were thumbing through all these guitars that you couldn't. We were playing cheap guitars; you couldn't couldn't get them. And um, we came to the middle of this, you know, came through and right in the middle of the was this uh, pinkish red, gold-plated, maple-necked. Stratocaster, and we went, Wow, just look at the photograph, look at it. And Cliff said, We'll get one of those. Jeez. And he bought it for Hank to play, he imported it into the country. It was about 140 guineas in those days, worth a bit more now. Mm. But you know, Cliff was the only one that had 140 guineas to be fair. Jeez. So that became our trademark. I mean, Hank's trademark. Everybody wanted to be Hank, you know, Hank was, mm. Hank was fantastic. Hank looked like Holly with the glasses, tall, slim, playing a Stratocaster. We all got matching red Stratocasters, and that became the Shadows thing, you know. And so on and so forth. And that was uh, just a magic time, and everybody wanted to play like Hank. Everybody, Mm. because he was so good.
0: There's still two of the rapiers. They're they're sort of like a Shadows, aren't they? Oh, yeah,
1: there's lots of Shadows bands. You know, I mean, you think of it now at our age, and, and everywhere... I know for certain in Canada and some parts of America, Australia, New Zealand, Europe, and the UK. Every month there are Shadows clubs meeting, still trying to play like Hank, still playing all the hits. All groups get together. It's I've been to a lot of Shadows clubs. You know, just turn up, and have a have a drink, and say hello. And it's it's a fantastic thing. All of this time later, but it, but we were huge influence on on groups. I think the group boom, the group boom came from the Shads. You know.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. I know you sang on some records. Were you happy with that, or would you sooner play instrumentals? Well, can
1: you remember I said Hank and I were convinced in 1958 we were Don and Phil Everly? Yes. Well, when we got to the studio and sing, you know, a vocal record yeah. and we heard it back, we realised, unfortunately, <laughs> we weren't Don and Phil. So... <laughs> Luckily, the instrumentals came along.
0: But didn't you come second in the Eurovision once? Oh, yeah. yeah.
1: Oh, I wish you wouldn't talk about it. Oh, sorry. You are interviewing the only contestant who forgot the words. Oh, did you? I forgot part of the first verse. I was so nervous. The head of the BBC said, uh, Billy Cotton Jr., we were in, in Stockholm because uh, ABBA had won it the year before. He said, uh, 400 million people watching it, guys. He said, try and come second so we don't have to stage it next year, because it costs a fortune. No. As he poked his head just as we were going on. <laughs> anyway, I fluffed, uh, fluffed a line or a line and a bit in the first verse, but luckily kept going. And uh, I think only the English probably noticed, to be fair, you know. yeah. Probably a, a strange accent he was adopting. Hi, this is Dennis Locourier, the voice of Dr. Hook, and you're listening to John Hannah Meets on Isle of Wight Radio because you have such good taste.
0: Bruce, with the shadows, you, you had changes in personnel, but yes. the group sort of, all the people you got in were, were sort of stars in their own
1: right. So there were, it way. didn't affect
0: the group at all, did it?
1: No, we were, Hank and I were um, concerned, to be fair, Because, uh, obviously, it was uh, Hank Marvin, Bruce Welch, Jet Harris, and Tony Meehan, who met in the Mm. two eyes, like I've mentioned, Mm. made the records that made us, you know, famous, for want of a better word. So time went by, not not too much time. Jet and Tony. Tony uh, left first. He became late. He was young. He wouldn't get out of bed, basically. We would turn up at the door, you know, going up to Newcastle, an eight-hour drive, and he'd still be in bed things like that, we, we left him in South Africa once, put the, uh, the ticket on his bed saying we're off, Yeah, we're going home now, and he wouldn't get out of it. He missed a couple of shows, so Tony left first. Uh, quite early on actually, he left in 1961. So, and because we knew Brian Bennett, Brian was a friend of ours, the first person we asked, you know, was Brian Bennett. Uh, and I said, I remember ringing Brian Bennett, and uh Tony and I and, and Hank had had an argument we were in Blackpool and he said oh get yourself another drummer you know one of those sort of young, yes yeah. as you do when you're young yeah you know, oh get yourself another drummer so um I rang Brian Bennett the next day and <laughs> great little story I said uh, it shows you the difference in things like now and then I said Brian uh, what are you doing? Where are you? What are you doing? He said, I'm just about to go into the, the pit as a pit musician because yeah. he could read he could yeah. read the dots. I think it was the Queen's Theatre. He said, we're Tommy Steele. And I said, oh, and I said, how much are you getting with Tommy Steele? Because we were mates, you know, and he said, yeah, yeah. oh, 25 a week, you know. And I said, double it and get up to Blackpool and join the shadows. And uh, he did. Yeah. And he's still here, but we've given him He's up to 60 quid now. Yes.
0: <laughs> I've got all his albums cause he, and he's all the themes he's written. Oh, it.
1: fantastic musician. Fantastic. Yeah. But Hank and I, just to go back to your original quote, Hank and I were worried, obviously. I mean, Hank and I were the front men, for want of a better word. Yeah. We did the chat and we were doing the singing and all that stuff. And we were obviously concerned, uh, first of all, when Tony left. Uh, we were concerned, you know, because it was the original band had made it. But Brian came in, he's a brilliant drummer, you know, huge asset to us. And then Jet left. Jet was a, a big name. He was, a you know, mm. a great player. But bless him, and I, he's gone now, and, you know, we loved him and everything. But he, he started to drink, and uh, in those early days, he got a hold of him, you know, and unreliable playing, really. So two of the band went, and we got Licorice Locking, mm-hmm. who we'd, again, met in the two eyes, but who played with Brian Bennett in Marty Wilde's Wildcats? Yeah. They were ha- they were half of Marty Wilde's Wildcats, and Marty was a mate of ours as well. So oh. we took we took half his half his band. Yeah. So, <laughs> and we're still Marty and I are still friends. But so we finished up with two great, uh, you know, replacements, if you like. But um, we were concerned at the time. But it it would appear, or it appeared, as long as sort of. Hank and I were there at the front doing the singing and the chat and the jokes and the, you know
0: we got away with it. I know you gave up for a little while about sixty eight was it? End of
1: sixty yeah. eight, yeah, yeah. Been uh, Well, shadows have been ten years then,
0: mm.
1: and I thought I thought we'd done everything to be honest. I thought anything a group could do, I think I thought we'd done. We you know we'd done world tours, we'd made films with Cliff, we'd done TV shows. Did you like the movies or not? Did you like we the movies? Loved them at the time because yeah. it all. It's, I always say music is of a time, but films like that are certainly of their time because when mm. you see them now, you go, whoa, whoa. You sort of cringe a little bit. But then, you know, then, 1960 or 61 or 62. They were brilliant. They were great films. Yeah. Well, not great films. I don't mean great acting or great, you know, it wasn't... Uh, the, the British musical. It wasn't Marlon Brando or no, any, no. you know, but, but, but musically, and they were cute. They were teenage type, you know, young... Like we used to get from America, those Frankie Avalon type movies yeah. and all that stuff. But Cliff became a huge um, movie star, two years running. You know, Young Ones and Summer Holiday were the, the box office hits of the year. You know, because he was acting, so he was on set most of the time. The Shadows would only do, I don't know, a week. But you'd hang around for eight weeks. Because that's, that's the way filming is, you know. Oh, yeah. You're in makeup at seven in the morning, and then you they call you at five to five. You right. wrote
0: some of the songs too, didn't you?
1: Hank and I wrote something in The Young Ones. I think it was Got a Funny Feeling, I think, Hank and I wrote in The Young Ones. But you ones. wrote Summer And Holiday. We Say Yeah. Yeah. That's The Young Ones. Yeah. But then Brian Bennett and I wrote Summer Holiday. Wow. Uh, Everybody
0: Cliff... knows that song, don't they?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a bit like the Summer uh, White Christmas. Yes. It's become that. But Bachelor Boy and all that stuff were, we're in... Uh, and Foot Tapper was in um, Summer Holiday. Yeah. So we had three three, four number ones from Summer Holiday in 1963.
0: And I know you produced people later on. Well, you produced Cliff, Olivia Newton-John, yep. Silla, Roger Whittaker.
1: Yep, yeah, yeah. So, it yep. was a natural progression for me. I loved songs. I loved songwriters. I loved songs. I loved really good songs. I couldn't write them myself. You know, Bachelor Boy is not, not exactly... Uh, Song of the Year but it was a massive hit you know I sold a million records again at the time Absolutely. but I loved songs I'd started producing with Olivia who was my fiance at the time as you probably know and we had a, a band called Marvin Welsh and Farrow John farrow yeah. we brought from Australia and our manager Peter Gormley said we want to record Olivia you know so we'd like uh, you and John to you know produce Olivia. So, again, we looked for songs, and uh, the first hit was If Not For You. Oh, I love that one. Yeah, If Not For You. And Banks of the Ohio, and uh, I think What Is Life and stuff. Yeah, so that's where record production started, Really? really. And then, you know, jump on another three or four years. And in 1975 or 1976, again, Cliff's manager said, anyone who comes up with some great songs... We'll have the opportunity to produce Cliff. So oh, no oh. So all my friends were songwriters. I knew all the top songwriters. I went looking for songs. And um, I found three songs at first. Took them to Peter Gormley, our manager. And uh, I said, what do you think of these, Peter? And uh, I played him Misty Unites, <laughs> Devil Woman, and a song called I Can't Ask For Any More Than You. And he went, oh, great. He said, go and, go and play them to Cliff. So Cliff lived out in Weybridge at the time. Uh, went out there with the three songs and we're in in his studio above his garage and I great to see him and I said can I just play you these three songs and I put Miss Unites on and the hair stood up on his arms on the back of his neck everything he went oh I've just got to do this song and then I played Devil Woman and uh, this other one I can't ask for any more than you and he said great he said let's record all of them So cut a long story short, we recorded the three songs and suddenly everybody was jumping up and down. EMI said and the manager and Cliff himself said, Oh, we've got to make it's not just three. He said, Let's make it an album. What an album. What an album. So that turned into I'm Really Famous in nineteen seventy six, I think. We had all the songs. And that album and the hits from it brought Cliff back in a in a big way in in the Mm. charts. People couldn't believe it was Cliff singing Devil Woman with a falsetto and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. But the quality of a song like Miss Unites just, it's electrifying. Mm. It does make it, you know, when you hear to it me. for the first time, it, you, you, and everyone's been in those love situations where you've lost your love or you want your love, you know, that incredible lyric of Miss Unites. And Cliff does a great performance and all of it. And suddenly we had everyone in 1976 walking around with you know, for promotion I'm Nearly Famous t-shirts Yeah, Elton was wearing one Elizabeth Taylor was wearing one all the top stars Not were wearing, thing, I'm Nearly it? Famous so it brought him back in, in a great way so that was fantastic production I did uh, three albums I think what did I say then fantastic production that's a bit a uh, well, no, bit was. over the top it no was. I, I should have a said that fantastic success that's, what was, <laughs> that's the word I was thinking of and um, I did three albums then Cliff and Terry uh, produced their own album, Cliff Terry Britton, by the way, who'd written yeah. um, uh, Devil Woman. And uh, then Alan Tani, who was my friend, who was Cliff's bass player, who played on the sessions in the I'm Nearly Famous sessions, brought me a song. And I, he said, "This is. can I play you this new song, Bruce? And uh, I said, yeah. And he put on a cassette that he played and sang all all the instruments played it and sang and it was We Don't Talk Anymore and I went wow (laughs) this is so even though they were just finishing off their album I rushed to uh, to Peter Gormley and I said Peter listen to this I said this is a world hit this is a smash and he said I think you're right he said go and play it to cliff and we recorded it and uh EMI would jump me up and down. Oh, fantastic. This is great. It's got to be on Cliff's new album. And at the time, to be fair, Cliff and Terry were a bit miffed because they said, well, no, this is our album and this is all. We produced it. And EMI said, this this record has to go on this album. And uh, they released the single, released the album. It turned out, We Don't Talk Anymore sold 5 million singles. Biggest hit of his career. So... Um, I've been lucky, but I've, I've worked with talent. You know, when you work with great... Cliff's a great singer. He's a great singer. You know, great talent. So um, It's been very thrilling to have been involved, not just as a player or a songwriter or in his band, but to make uh, hit records as a producer with friends of yours. Ooh, I could crush a grape. I could test drive a Tonka. If it isn't, John Hannum meets... Currently
0: I'm at the Electric Airwave studio in London with Bruce Welch and we are in a soundproof studio but outside there's a pretty noisy pneumatic drill which has joined us, I think.
1: I, I think that's uh, Shadows fans trying to get in, to be honest. <laughs> they'll, they'll do anything to
0: get in. You know? Yes, they will. <laughs> so when you reformed the Shadows, yeah. was that for money or not?
1: Uh, no. Well, no. Well, it was everything. If you think about it, we did Eurovision. We came second, as you, as you know. But we were, I think we were in the top 10 with Let Me Be The One. And The Shadows hadn't had a top 10 single in about, I don't know, eight, nine years, maybe. So EMI, to be fair, called us in and said, you've got a hit record. You know, all the back catalogue still sells. We know you've got Marvin Welsh and Farrow, and, you know, we've done that. And it wasn't the the hit you thought maybe it would be. Hopefully it would be. So you'd be mad not to follow this up, to be fair. So we all agreed and we said, why don't we do um, half a dozen concerts? So we did half a dozen concerts in the usual Bristol and Leicester and all sold out. Uh, we hadn't been in the shadows for quite a while. You know, we'd done them. And I remember playing Croydon and uh, we just came on because we did the whole show then in those days. And all the audience stood up. We hadn't played anything. It was just to see us back together, I think. And that warmth it was just tremendous. We did the concerts, fantastic, we loved it. You get the bug back playing and all the hits and all that stuff. And EMI said, again, bless them, this was going into January of 1977, they said, we're going to release an album on television called The Shadows' 20 Golden Greats. And we went, oh, great, Well, all the old stuff, you know, all the mono and all that Apache and all the early stuff. He said, yeah, yeah, we've got 20 Golden Greats with the famous uh, cover with the three guitars. Yeah. So out it came, and this is the winter of 77, and it sold a million and a quarter albums in the UK. And we said, well, this is ridiculous. I mean, it's like... So uh, management, we all said, yeah, let's do a tour. So we did The Shadows' 20 Golden Dates. Again, sold out. Everywhere was sold The reception was amazing. And that just kept us going. We never stopped after that. We were back. So from 77, we we reformed properly, you know, touring and all that stuff, making other albums. And uh, we couldn't believe that all our old stuff, which so many of the public probably had before, you know. They bought again. They bought again, yeah. That was a power of TV advertising. That's when TV advertising albums by the Beach Boys or Dinah Ross or whoever, you know, that came to the fore in the seventies. Yeah. Bruce, you had fourteen years between top ten hits, I think. Did we? Yeah,
0: when you, you made were a
1: mine of useless information. Yeah, John. I know.
0: I'm sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> so, looking back, you've had an amazing career. Did you actually act as a musical advisor for Buddy the Stage? I
1: did, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to use that word, fortuitous, again. Yeah. It's not easy to say that. When, no, it isn't. When you're only drinking tea in the morning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, I lived in Walton on Thames at the time. This I'm talking 80s now, probably halfway through the 80s, maybe a bit later. And um, I, I'm waiting with a friend of mine, Roger Greenaway. who's was a fantastic songwriter on the on the platform to go into London, which is like 16 minutes or 20 minutes into London on the train. So we get in and. Uh, this gentleman got in, and Roger said, "Oh, Laurie." He said, "He said, do you know Bruce Welch?" I said, "No, hi, Laurie." And Laurie was a, a famous entrepreneur. We got talking, and he said, "He said, you, you and Hank were great Buddy Holly fans, weren't you?" I said, "Oh, were we?" Yeah. You know, I said, "Hank, you know, with with the glasses and the Stratocaster, we all bought Stratocasters because mm. of Buddy, Buddy Holly." Holly. Yeah. He said, "Would you be interested, Bruce? I'm going to put on a musical of Buddy's life on stage." Would you care to help? Would you be musical associate? You know, you know, could Because would you know about how it all happened? How he recorded, what he did, how he played it? I said, yeah. yeah. I know it, know it all backwards, really. And he said, well, uh, I'd like you to do it if you'd be interested. So I became uh, the musical consultant, was the correct word. I feel like a doctor, a consultant. And we went looking for Buddy Holly's and uh, the show. And cut a long story short. We got about seven possible Buddy Hollies guys who would put the glasses yeah. on, and and Laurie went to the Albert Hall one night to see Carol King and Carol King's guitarist looked like Buddy Holly, he was uh, fantastic, tall, slim, curly hair, and uh, he became Buddy Holly. And so we we opened in Plymouth. We did a three-week tryout in Plymouth, and the reaction the first night was the same as the reaction thirteen years. Later, because we ran in the West End for thirteen years. I know. Yeah. yeah, it was phenomenal show, and because because the people loved his music, they still love his music. Those songs he wrote and sang, Tell you know, they played on on the radio all of the time. Yeah, and anybody in a band who's been been in a group as a guitar player, everybody's played Buddy Holly songs. You know, the Beatles' little first ever demo they made was "That'll Be the Day." Yeah, you know. Yeah. I know
0: you're still playing, because when I saw Dwayne Eddy a few weeks ago in London... Dwayne who? You came on stage and played. It was terrific. I bet that was a kick for you, wasn't it? It
1: was. The kick was only 24 hours before. I got an email. I think Dwayne played on them Tuesday night or whatever it was. And I got an email on the Monday saying, well, Dwayne would be thrilled if you would come and play Shazam. Yeah. And in bracket, in E, in yeah. the key of us was, is there any other key for Shazam? And I went, ooh, getting up with, getting up with Dwayne. and you know, I haven't seen him for 20 years or whatever it was. And anyway, cut a long story short. I came the next day and uh, met your good self in the stalls. Stood there and I thought, wow. And I, yeah, I'm standing there. Two things: Dwayne Eddy in September '58 started the whole guitar instrumental boom. If it hadn't been for Dwayne with Rebel Rouser and all those fantastic hits he had, maybe there wouldn't have been a Shadows instrumental thing or the Ventures as well, you know, who came in 1960. So the day I met you there was twofold for me. First of all, going on the stage and saying hello again, meeting him, doing uh, the two minutes, because they, they hired a Fender for me, and I said, I'll just plug into somebody's amp, you know, Richard Hawley's amp. And we did uh, Shazam, as you know. Yes. So that was my two minutes of fame playing with Dwayne. I always thought it was great. I said, I'm a bit of a perfectionist myself. And he, we did it, and it's two minutes long. And he said, great. Great, right. I said. Oh, can we do it again, Dwayne? He said, "Why?" I said, "I just like to play it more than once. You know, it's only two minutes long. So, and I just like to get a bit closer to the drummer and hear the the bottom end and all that stuff." We did it twice, rehearsal twice. But, and I stood there during that well, when I was playing that two minutes, and I was looking up. You know, it's a it's a fantastic theatre, the Palladium, And I thought, my God, the the times we've played here. You know, probably hundreds of times over the last sixty years, because of like the six-month season, four-month seasons of, uh, you know, Aladdin and Cinderella and the 20th anniversary season and this Marvin Walsh. In fact, oh, you know, working there with Tom Jones, been there many times and the TV shows, of course, Mm. all the TV shows. And it was just a thrill to be back, even if it was for two minutes, on the Palladium stage, but to work with one of your heroes who was... Sometimes when you meet your heroes, you get disappointed. Yeah. But he was a, a gentleman, he was lovely. I think he said something like, um, evidently he'd ask someone, a friend of mine, do you think Bruce would be upset? He said, and I think he introduced me saying, this man has spent his life in the shadows, but I'd like to bring him out of the shadows tonight.
0: Yeah, that was very clever. To that. back me
1: on uh, Shazam. And I loved it, I loved it. And uh, he's a lovely man, a uh, lovely guy. Uh, his wife is lovely, very, very you know, welcoming. So I felt quite at home, even if it was for two minutes.
0: And Bob Harris was there. Bob, yep. Great day, wasn't it? Whispering Bob. Yes. You got an OBE as well. Congrats on that. That
1: Thank you very much. Yeah, I was um, thrilled a bit. Uh, To be fair, the shadows were all offered one, Uh, Hank, myself and Brian Bennett, in 2004 for our services to music. I always put question mark at the end of that. But yeah, yeah, for our services to music. I think because of the the influence we had, you know, on so many groups and people, especially guitar players. But also there'd been no, you know, no scandals, no, you know, we hadn't did our income tax or hadn't hadn't been in jail for something else. So um, it was a very great honor. Hank, because of his religion, turned it down, a Jehovah's Witness. Mm. So he didn't feel as though he could uh, accept it, which is fine. But Brian Bennett and I went there and uh, met the Queen. She did the two of us together. We'd met her quite a few times before doing the Royal Variety shows and things like that. And she said, uh, and how long have you been going now? And I said, almost as long as you have, Your Majesty. <laughs> and she smiled and she looked at both of us and she said, and never a cross word. And I said, uh, <laughs> we can't say that. She was brilliant. She was great. But we were thrilled a bit. It's a great honor, you know.
0: I wonder how much a record called Please, Mr. Please would be now, if you could find one. That was your solo well, only, yeah, record. yeah. Is that still around? Was there many sold or not really?
1: No, no, it wasn't a hit at have all. Have you got a copy or not? Uh, I don't think I have. Oh, have you? I've got the other version. Yes. Well, Please, Mr. Please, not many people know about that, but Please, Mr. Please, uh, Olivia and I split up in, in the early 70s. And I was writing with John Rostil, who was a Shadows bass player, mm. another great talent, another great, great bass player, but great talent. And we were writing songs, and we wrote this song called Please, Mr. Please. And uh, you wouldn't have to be too clever to l- look at the lyric and realize what it was about. And uh, so I thought, John said, Oh, you should record that, mate. You should do it. I said, Anyway, I took it to EMI. They liked the song i recorded it totally it was like a I, this must have been about 1973 or four even maybe no 73 so i did a totally different up tempo this that and the other anyway it didn't it was it sunk without trace but it was a good song still a good song i didn't think anything of it for months and months and then john Farrer, who would move to uh, america with olivia and producing her Sent me over, he said, I'd like you to listen to this uh, little tune of yours, Bruce, that we recorded. And it was Please, Mr. Please, Olivia's version, which uh, went to number one in America, sold a million copies. (laughs) And I said, thanks, John. (laughs) Yeah, it was lovely. Totally different version. Oh, yeah. She was the queen of America, middle America, you know, with her country music type stuff. Brilliant.
0: Bruce, right away from music, what do you do? What's your big turn off? Turn off. Yeah,
1: when you're not playing Listening music. to the Shadows records. <laughs> yeah. Turn on, you mean. <laughs> yeah, all yeah. right. Like, turn turn on. on, yeah. I, I love, uh, John, I love history. Even when I was at school, I loved history. I loved archaeology. I loved stuff like that. Could never do anything about it, but one of my great passions is ancient Roman history. Is it? The Romans, The you know, what they They did. landed on the Isle of Wight. Do you know they, that? they built a wall in newcastle mate eh? yeah adrian's adrian's that. wall That's yeah. to keep the scots out <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> so never having had time during my long career to uh, have time to go and look at all these things the romans did i do that now and i have i've done it for quite a few years now and so i go to rome i go to you know north africa i go to the amalfi coast um, I love all the old emperors. I love, I just love the history of it, and uh, it's the old joke, you know, in this country they say, "What did what did the Romans ever do for us?" You know, straight roads, central heating, Hadrian's Wall, you know, half the buildings are still here. I just love that that part of history, you know. Uh, so that's my main. Um, not turn on. <laughs> right now, does it? Uh, I just love doing that, and my other which is probably sounds a bit strange, but isn't. I love the history of the Second World War. Obviously, I'm a war baby. I was born in the war. Uh, My father was in the Royal Artillery. And uh, obviously, like the Roman stuff, you can go and visit these places where incredible heroism and tragedy also happened. You know, you can just drive into Europe and there it is. So I find that uh, fascinating, the the, uh, tragedy of war. But then uh, I'm the first on my feet on, you know, uh, November the 11th, when the uh, the two minutes silence, I love all that stuff. So, Roman history and uh, the Second World War takes up a fair amount of my time.
0: Bruce, it's been an absolute pleasure to come up and chat to you, because I've waited a long time, and uh, through Dwayne Eddy, we're together today, which is We're terrific. together, isn't
1: that, isn't that great? So, and
0: you still play when you can, don't
1: you? Yeah, I mean, we don't tour now. The Shads won't tour. Hank, Hank won't come now. You know, he he lives in Perth, in Australia, mm. as you know. He's been there since 1986, so he's an Aussie now. Yes, he's an Aussie. When the English cricket team goes there, he he bats for Australia. No. <laughs> yes. Oh yeah, he's an Aussie now. But to be fair, you know, when Cliff and the Shads did that last tour, the 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 final final tour. I know the Shads have done three, but yeah. that reunion tour and the final, it was the final, 50, 50 years. It was a magic time to be back with Cliff and the Shads playing Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Europe, uh, the UK. The receptions we got were heartwarming, just heartwarming. you know. And we filled 56 arenas around the world. It was just, what a way to go out yeah well you can't we couldn't really top that
0: masses of hair you still got i'm very envious bruce Roach.
1: well i've got a spare one <laughs> i've got two of these have you no, 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 no. no i no, know
0: it's no. yours
1: don't worry no it's mine yeah, yeah.
0: not all our british rock no. and rollers have got their own well, but no, we, we won't go down we that won't road. go down that road <laughs> no, no no can i once again say thanks a lot and i wish uh, you great good health in the future bruce really
1: that's the main thing john and uh, Good to meet you properly. And I hope you get two or three minutes out of this interview.
0: I'm sure I will. <laughs> thanks, Bruce. Thanks a lot. In fact, I got more than just a few minutes. Today you've been listening to part two of the Bruce Welch, or Bruce Welsh, whichever you prefer, interview. So instead of a few minutes, in the end, I got 70 minutes. <laughs> Grateful thanks to him. You've been listening to John Hannah Meek's courtesy of Isle of Wight Radio. Don't forget to look at my website, johnhannam.com, for news of more interviews and how you might purchase my books. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye for now.